Hello, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, a show where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So Rena, what did you get obsessed with this week? This week in Germany, the Social Democratic Party, also known as the SPD, announced that Olaf Scholz would be their new chancellor candidate. Scholz is currently Germany's finance minister. Scholz, however, has a very checkered past, including his involvement in the use of vomit-inducing substances on alleged drug dealers, leading to the death of one suspect. This is a tactic that the Freitag described as death penalty via the back door. And actually, the use of the substance was deemed as going against the obligation to protect human dignity and against the general personal rights of the accused by the highest courts in Frankfurt, Bremen, and Dusseldorf back in 1996. And it just sort of got me thinking about, is this supposed to be the next person to lead Germany? What does it mean when Merkel leaves? What does, you know, Merkel even mean on a global scale of politics? What does she mean just in Germany as a leader, but more specifically as a leader who is a woman? And how are we going to continue on from here? Yeah, what is going to happen when Merkel leaves? She's been in power for 15 years. She is all I've known in this country. I also grew up during Margaret Thatcher, and Margaret Thatcher had an incredibly long, similar run. And I remember when John Major became Prime Minister, and I was like, what? That's weird. What does Merkel mean is an interesting question because she's been turned into a verb. Merkel to Merkel means in German to dither, dather, or not really make any big decisions. Which I think is a little bit unfair because it's quite judgmental, isn't it? Because is big decisions necessarily a good thing? Is she being judged because she's a woman and she's just stable and in the middle she has a sort of leadership style it's called leading from the center she takes into account multiple points of views tries to get a general consensus even within also her own party she doesn't you know go with one faction over another kind of thing she's very pragmatic and not egotistical which is key it's actually a very good way of wielding power to Merkel just sounds quite negative and I wonder if she were a man would she be given a slightly better term or would that term mean something kind of positive like a way to be stable or a way to be analytical or rational and she's all of these things let's not forget that she's a quantum chemist the way that she's led us through COVID has seen her approval rating go up to 71% it's massive and if you look at the way Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand leads as well she also kind of leads from the centre and actually the thing about Merkel is that it's not like she doesn't make big decisions she has made big decisions I mean letting the Syrian refugees in in 2015-16 was massive her take on nuclear power her economic decisions and also the fact that she has ridden two massive crises, which is the Eurozone crisis and the Greek debt. She negotiated all of that and was part of, you know, the Euro continuum. And even now with COVID, this massive package of consolidated debts and bonds for the Eurozone, she's the one who's negotiating it and leading it. So it's even unfair to say that she doesn't make big decisions. She's not like Joe Biden, who's just like, nothing will change, it would just be stable. Of course, there's stability, but she will change things if she needs to change things. And I think in this sense, she's been severely, yeah, misrepresented. Yeah, I think it's just because she's not a showman. And we're so used to politics being showmanship that she just gets stuff done. You know, like that SNL skit with Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, where they go like, bitches get shit done. She just quietly goes about and does it. And 
I think we're really going to miss her when she goes. Hopefully there'll be a strong candidate to follow her. Otherwise, Europe might be fucked. Yeah, I wonder what's next for Germany. There are some possibilities. I think Olaf Scholz actually has quite a strong chance because he's quite centrist in the SPD. And obviously the CDU has not got leader or a candidate yet. So it could be either a CDU-SPD coalition or CDU-Green coalition, or if the CDU loses, then a Green-SPD coalition with the left party as well, so Green-Red-Red coalition. And also, under the Green leadership, the chancellor would be either Robert Habe or Annalena Berber, who are both sort of centrist also. Yeah, but it's a, it's a really interesting question. It's funny what you said about the way that she leads because yeah you're right she you know she takes her time she analyzes things before she acts or speaks out but that's the complete opposite of women are constantly accused of doing right isn't the big argument that people always say is that oh women shouldn't be in positions of power because we're too emotional or too hysterical and isn't Merkel just the proof that that's very clearly not the case because like even if I don't necessarily agree with all of her politics her party voted against marriage equality. I still think that she's a very consistent figure. And yeah, she, you know, especially in times of Corona, she was a great figurehead and a great person to have to look to because she always has a sense of calm and rationality to her. But I think that it just in terms of like on a global scale as the leader of the West in quotation mark, it's kind of frightening to think of who's going to come after, who's going to come next. Yeah, I think with the way things are looking now, it looks like in Europe, the strongest leader that everyone will look to then next would be Macron. And then on a global scale, obviously the US has just stepped way back. So yeah, that's it for the Western world. This is us. And I guess it's Macron. I don't see anyone else. It's obviously not Boris Johnson or Britain that has left Europe anyway. So a little bit of a vacuum. In preparation for this, I was just looking up some statistics around women in the German government. So women got the right to vote in 1918 in Germany. And I was looking at the development of proportion of women in the German federal government. Between 1990 and 1994, it was at 20.5%. And since 2017, it's at 30.9%. So that's actually not that much of a dramatic increase. In fact, it's a fall. In 2013 to 2017, there was 36.8% of the government was women. And Germany ranks 46th in the world ranking of female representation and 11th behind other EU member states. And what's even more interesting is actually the parties that have the highest proportion of women currently in the German federal government. We have the Green Party with 58.2, the left with 53.6, and then the SPD with 41.8. So sort of all the liberal lefty kind of parties have the highest percentage. And unsurprising, the party with the lowest percentage with 10.9 is the AFD, which if you don't know is the alternative for Germany, which is essentially the really right-wing party of idiots. Yeah, earlier this week you sent me a picture of the book you're reading about the difference between men and women when it comes to extreme right movements. I've forgotten what the book is. Yeah, so I just read Going Dark, The Secret Lives of Extremists by Julia Ibna, which I highly recommend everybody reads. She, over years, worms her way into extremist communities online to sort of understand the way they work and the way they communicate. This is also what she does professionally. She's a research fellow 
Costello looking into extremist behavior. And she talks about some incredibly interesting things. Like she goes into the, in my head, I say trade wives, but I think they're called trad wives, which are these like traditional wives, which is like a group of women who want to go back to traditional gender roles in their online forums. If one of them is like, oh, my husband abused me, they're all like, mm, well, you deserved it. Did you talk back to him? What was interesting about that group of people was that she says that when she joined that group, she was going through a breakup. And so she found some weird amount of comfort in all of these women, not necessarily support each other, but come up for reasons as to why their relationship fails. And so she was like, oh, this is dangerous because I saw myself really quickly dragged into this world. But in the most interesting part of the book, well, all of the book is incredibly interesting. She is in like telegram group chats with jihadist brides and she goes to like neo-Nazi rock festivals. Reading this, you get very anxious for her and some of the stuff she's doing. And in one part of the book, which she calls meme wars, she talks about how the internet is sort of mobilized to achieve a purpose. Specifically here, she's talking about Donald Trump getting elected. And she just goes into some statistics about, you know, hate content produced online. And actually, she says that sociodemographic research showed that men were 1.76 times more likely than women to produce and spread hateful content online. Another study concluded that men have a higher tendency to engage in anti-social Facebook activities like trolling due to elevated levels of narcissism. Women, on the other hand, are more likely to become victims of online hate. A Pew Research Center study showed that women experience online stalking and sexual harassment much more frequently than men. The conclusion that researchers from Amnesty International and Element AI reached were even more shocking. Female politicians and journalists became victims of hate speech on Twitter every 30 seconds in 2017. A total of 1.1 million hateful tweets reached high-profile women in the UK and US, including all British female MPs and female members of the US Congress. And then she sort of like goes on to explain how like they have handbooks specifically explaining how to target women, how to seek them out, where women are vulnerable. And I think also one of the incredibly shocking things about this book was something that maybe I sound super naive that I did not realize is that we think that, oh, all of these far right or any sort of extremists, they're all on Twitter, they're on Facebook. They have their entire own world of social media. They have their own version of every platform. They just use Facebook and Twitter and all these like mainstream medias as ways to grab people's attentions and then move them to a third party. And what I also thought was super interesting about this book was she talks about how on a very basic level, it's super easy to recognize a fascist or a neo-Nazi. But actually, in terms of the way that they dress or the way that they code themselves, you can't notice it off the bat. And just two days ago, I was over at my grandmother's and we were, there was some stupid crime show playing on TV. And, you know, it had the whole, you know, neo-Nazi thing going. And the neo-Nazi guy, he had like a swastika tattooed on his arm and it was plain to see. And it was like, oh, Nazi. And then I kept thinking after reading this book, I'm like, that's probably exactly what you're not going to find. Like, this is such a naive and silly view of how neo-Nazis are functioning today. Like, she was talking about how a lot of them have an 8-8, which stands for, I don't know if I can say this, I don't know if I want to say this, for like the Heil Hitler, the 8-8, the HH. Everything they do is so sophisticated and they're so good at blending in on every level. It's truly shocking. And just the abuse that these women suffer. But she talks about this phenomenon called doxing, which is where you seek out a target and then you find as much information as you can about them online, whether that's you know to find their weak
weakness, whether that's them specifically or their family members, and you just expose anything you can about them. And it's super frightening and makes me want to delete all of my social media accounts. The thing about like wanting to delete all of your social media accounts or all of the online hate, for example, especially against prominent women or women with voices specifically, is to do with that. Because to have a voice or to have a public platform is a form of power. And during our dinner last week, one of the topics that we wanted to discuss was power and what does it mean? But traditionally in the patriarchal society, power has meant having a voice. And I was rereading the brilliant short book by the classicist Mary Beard called Women in Power. So she points out that the very first text of Western literature, which is the Odyssey by Homer, starts with an example of a man telling a woman to shut up basically because Penelope comes down and she sees all these bards singing and these suitors and she asks for like some different type of music and her son who is teenager tells her to basically shut up and go back upstairs and leave the public domain is a place for men not for her to be voicing anything in and he's a teenager and her son basically silencing her because the public domain from the Greeks onward was always reserved for men which is why when you say about the statistics about women politicians, it's no wonder that women are discouraged from going into politics. Technically, nowadays, the internet is our public domain. So it's so, well, it's actually really depressing to see that not much has changed since ancient Greece. You know what I mean? Women are still told to shut up in the public domain and harass. We really haven't come that far, have we? Also in this book, Mary Beard gives a really good example of the silencing of Elizabeth Warren in the US Senate, and she was excluded from the debate when she attempted to read out a letter by Coretta Scott King. I don't know how justified this is in terms of the rules of the senatorial debate, but the rules did not stop Bernie Sanders and other senators, who were admittedly in her support, reading out the same letter, but they were not excluded. And that's just one example of a woman being silenced. And obviously, you know, you have the example of Margaret Thatcher. She lowered the pitch and tone of her voice so that she could sound more like a man and have more authority because the deep voiced man sound is supposed to be more rational and all of that kind of stuff. Henry James, in one of his essays, insisted that language risks becoming, and this is a quote, a generalized mumble or jumble a tongueless slobber or snarl or whine. It will sound like the moo of a cow, the bray of the ass, the bark of the dog. He was, you know, one of many. And also what's really funny is that all reminds me completely of Trump and how he speaks. A woman would never be able to get away with that. What she points out in the book is that there's no kind of template for how a woman in power should look, which is why a lot of women, including Merkel, Clinton, wear pantsuits because they don't want to be seen as a clothes horse, which they should not. And Margaret Thatcher lowers her voice. Also, what's interesting with Merkel is that, you know, she's doing things without any ego. She's just interested in doing them. And if you think of the biggest political movement of our time right now, Black Lives Matter, that was started by three women. And everyone would be very hard pushed to name those three women. And those women are Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tomek. And they started this massive movement, and they're getting a lot of stuff done, but their names and their celebrities not behind it. And I guess that might also be a definition of what women's power kind of looks like, rather than this egotistical, big decisions, insecure, kind of divisive leadership style. And one of the things that, you know, Merkel has been very good on is just consensus. 
I thought what you said about Margaret Thatcher lowering her voice, that was so interesting because the very first thing that I thought of was that Abraham Lincoln, who is often cited as being the greatest American president, was actually described as having an incredibly high and folksy voice. It just goes to show that like, okay, different times, they couldn't project his voice all throughout the United States in the 1860s. But it just goes to show this like double standard for men and women, right? During the last election or the run up to the last election during the primaries in America, I was having a conversation with someone and for the life of me, I can't remember who it was. So if it was you, let me know about how Hillary Clinton isn't really that outspoken about a lot of very serious women's issues, but Bernie Sanders kind of is. I mean, you know, he's not, not to the same extent as, a, as most campaigning feminists, but anyway. And whoever I was talking to made the point of like, yeah, but he's allowed to. If Hillary Clinton brought up these really deep, inherent feminist issues, she would be attacked. But as a man, he's allowed to. And that made me think of Emma Watson's UN speech that she gave for her He For She campaign, which was such a watered-down, man-friendly speech. And the death threats and rape threats she got for that was unbelievable. Anita Sharkeesian of Feminist Frequency, who analyzes online culture and pop culture, does a lot with video games, and she's had to cancel things and... She's had to move and change her address because people, specifically men, have threatened her and doxxed her so much. And so there really truly is this insane double standard. And yeah, what you're saying about Merkel, you know, she has short hair. She always wears these incredibly neutral pantsuits. She's never too feminine. She's, you know, leans a little bit to the masculine. I saw a picture of her in a ball gown once and it kind of threw me for a second. Not in like a negative way or a judgy way, but it was so unused to the sight of her in something so overtly feminine. That's interesting about the ball gown because one of the topics also that we discussed during our dinner was femininity. And then, of course, we discussed power and then all the different ways that femininity and power go together. You know, what is power? And when we move to a new definition of or our own definition or better definition of power, I think that could be useful for everyone. Yeah, femininity and power is a super interesting one. It makes me think of, in her book, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie talks about how in Nigeria, they talk about how women have this thing that they call bottom power, which is not power itself but the power that they gain through manipulating a man. But is that really power? I guess we could go on and on about that. Femininity and power is a whole nother podcast. So in our three things about how to be a better human this week, we're going to give you some tips that arose out of our discussion during our offline podcast and that are inspired by female leaders today. Number one thing you can do to be a better person. My favorite quote by Eleanor Roosevelt, which is, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. So be mindful of not intentionally giving away your power, not feeling like you're in a position where you don't have the right to that power and own it. And in those moments where you feel like, oh, I need to step back, I need to relinquish my power. Just take a moment to sort of analyze and think through, specifically as women, why in this situation am I handing it off willingly? Tip number two is inspired by Merkel. And there is another quote by Richard Leon Dahlberg Acton, which is very famous, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. But as we can see from Merkel, 
she's not corrupt at all. And this is in the week that Steve Bannon has just been arrested by the FBI in the US, who is the seventh person associated with the Trump administration who is facing criminal charges. And Merkel has not had one single scandal in 15 years. She has a completely clean record. And when her husband calls up the Philharmonie to buy tickets and they offer it to him for free, because she is the chancellor of this country after all, they refuse it and pay for it themselves. Which I think is just so incredible for a leader today or of any day, anywhere, ever. And tip number three, to quote Uncle Ben from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of power or a little power. What matters is what you do with it and how you treat those in positions of less power than you. And just to wrap up this episode, I wanted to end with a quote from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. This is from chapter four of the first book. Anyone who is capable of getting themselves made president should on no account be allowed to do the job. Unless, of course, it's Merkel. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsession with us. Tweet us and follow us on Instagram at the underscore misinformed or email us at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to our newsletter. Find the link via our Instagram or our show notes. We are an independent, non-profit podcast. If you would like to show us some love, you can give a one-off donation via SoundCloud or become a patron on patreon.com slash misinformed. Thanks for listening and until next week.